We're talking about Deborah this morning. Deborah's a hero in the Bible. And every culture has heroes, and heroes exist for many, many reasons. Heroes uh, fight for the good in the battle between good and evil. Heroes at their best model integrity. Heroes almost always in history model the sense of overcoming forces of evil that would have pushed others uh, into places of marginalization, oppression. And so these are all aspects of being a hero. But the combined effect of all these things is what's most important of all. Heroes kind of raise our game. If we're here and we see an aspect in someone's life, I don't know if you're this way, but I am this way. When I see someone in somebody, it inspires me to say, oh, I think I'm capable of more. And then I, it raises my game. Uh, when Lindsey Vaughn makes comeback after comeback after comeback with ski injuries... I find more courage to pursue recovery myself. When Amy Carmichael, Irish woman, uh, moves to southern India to work in order to uh, help women who are temple prostitutes be freed from that, I find the courage to say yes to God when God calls me to places I don't want to go. When Rosa Parks uh, says no to the back of the bus, I find the courage to confront the powers, or at least I hope I do. When, when I see a hero, a hero raises my game. And so the woman this morning that we look at, Deborah, in the Bible, is a hero in many ways. She's a warrior. She's a commanding officer. She's a mother. She's a judge. She's a prophetess. So if you look, if you look at kind of the heroes that are in kind of folklore in our culture, I think of several heroes that are all embodied in this one woman, Deborah. She's Wonder Woman because she goes into battle first before the men are willing to go. She's Princess Leia because she's the commanding officer. She's a general. She's Yoda because she speaks truth uh, as a prophetess she does, right? And, and she's, get this, she's Elastigirl because Elastigirl was a mother who was super flexible, right? So all, all, she's always all rolled into one and and there are four truths regarding her calling that we want to look at this morning that will help us discover the qualities needed in each of our lives if we're to live fully into our calling. And, and so uh, people who live into their calling are people who find their gifts, hear the voice of God, respond, and live as fully as possible. We follow God to where God leads us, and that makes us a hero to someone we become then for another an example. And there isn't a person in the room who is not called to be an example for others. All of us are called to bear fruit in this way. So we'll see this this morning. To do so, we need to begin by looking at the context of the book of Judges. Judges is this early era in the history of Israel as a nation uh, where they now have their land. They don't yet have a king. And it was actually never God's intent that they would ever have a king uh, so there was no king during the book of Judges, but what happened is lacking a king, Israel kind of fell into this sense over and over and over again of kind of moral anarchy and moral decay because rather than allowing God to be their king, we read the, like the phrase that occurs over and over again in Judges is this, every person did that which was right in their own eyes. So it's this sense of moral anarchy. So here, watch, this is the pattern in the book of Judges. Moral anarchy leads to decay. Then when, when Israel's at the bottom, God brings a judge who brings corrective teaching, and the corrective teaching leads to repentance. Repentance leads to revival. Revival leads, leads to overcoming the enemy who was oppressing, and this leads to a sense up top of, okay, we're back where we belong. But then, watch this, right at the top, again, Israel does what's right in their own eyes and becomes complacent. And before we go on into these four 
qualities this morning of leadership. I just want to note here that when you're at the top of your game, that's actually one of the most dangerous places to be. Because at the top of our game is when we become complacent. And so when we say to one another, as we do here in Seattle, how's it going? And the answer, as it always is, is fine. Then what we really should be doing is you know, praying for one another because when you're fine, be careful. Uh, illustrative of this is my own like exercise regime. Uh, there's a hip thing for me that makes running difficult. And there's certain exercises. And if I do these every day, then the pain goes away and I can, I can run forever. No problem. But here's what happens. I have the pain. I go, oh, I'm broken. I do the exercises. I recover. I can run forever. And then as soon as I can run forever, what do I do? I stop doing the exercises. And then I wake up one morning, I have the pain again. I'm back down the bottom. And I read this book uh, with the exercises in it. That's the equivalent of a judge in this book, right? I repent and then I recover, and then as soon as I'm okay again, down again. This happens in all of our lives in different areas, true? So, so we're going to learn how to overcome that by being more like Deborah. Four truths significant to her calling and our calling, as all of us are called to be a hero to someone, to, to be an influence. Deborah's called to lead, first quality. Second quality, called to serve. Third quality, called to, to sing. Third quality, uh, called to be a mom. Lead, serve, sing, be a mom. And all of these apply to all of us in the room, regardless of gender, including number four, as we'll see when we get into this. So let's begin with this first quality of leadership. God calls Deborah to lead. Now, as, when you read the text, there are several roles uh, wrapped up in her calling to lead. She's a prophetess, which means she receives revelation from God and then passes that on to the nation. She's a judge, and it was always the judge that God used to restore people, bringing people back into a real relationship with God as people had drifted away. And these two roles, prophetess and judge, also make her uh, the commanding officer of the army. And, and, and every one of these aspects of her calling as a leader, hear this, very important, places her in a position of authority over men. She is leading men, right? Right? So I'm going to make a couple of observations here, and this is very, at points this morning, uh, heady, because we have to really study the Bible to understand what God is trying to teach us here. Observation number one, this text alone brings me to a clear conclusion that God calls women to positions of authority, not just over women and children, but over men. It's all through the Bible. It's not just this example. There are many, but we face as well, all of us in the room, if we're going to be honest, we face an interpretive challenge, and this is also why the church is divided on this subject, and the interpretive challenge is a particular text, and the largest particular text that provides an interpretive challenge is 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, and now I quote the Bible, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Boom. Done. Kind of drop the mic. That's the end of the conversation. Women... Uh, can't teach. Uh, now, we have to figure out then, well, what, like, Richard, what are you saying? If Paul says that, you seem to be contradicting Paul. Yes, I seem to be, but I don't think that I am. Let me explain. Uh, when Paul says, I don't permit anyone to teach or have authority over a man, what we have to do, as we have to do with any particular verse of the Bible, is we have to ask this question. And this is a question all of us must ask when we're studying the Bible. This is why we need to study, not just read. When we study, we ask, does this text apply to all people for all time, or is this a particular instance? Because not all texts in the Bible apply to all people for all time. No one in the room has yet confronted me 
this morning from my clear violation of Scripture because I'm wearing wool and linen. And according to the Old Testament, that's actually in violation of Levitical law. And yet not one of you has confronted me to say, Richard, uh, I've talked, I'm talking to the elders and there's going to be an intervention. Uh, you need to clean your act up. But it's in the Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's in the Bible. And if for some reason we've all come to the collective conclusion that that doesn't apply to us, what do we do with 1 Timothy 2? Is it for all people for all time? Here's why I think not. A, Junius, a woman, is an apostle, Romans 16. B, Priscilla and Aquila offer corrective teaching to a man, Apollos, in the book of Acts. C, the woman at the well is the first evangelist. D, God calls Deborah to be commander, prophetess, and judge. And if you just think of the uh, category of prophetess alone, you find several in the Bible. You find Huldah in 2 Kings. You find Miriam uh, during the days of Moses. You find Anna during the days of Jesus' childhood. You find Philip's daughters in Acts ch- uh, chapter 21. And you find women who were prophesying in the, in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So the one thing that we know for certain is that 1 Timothy chapter 2 is not an injunction against women having authority over any man at any time. It's not. Because women have authority over men all through the Bible, right? Now, I have a particular belief that uh, Paul moves in 1 Timothy 2 from a plural, a general uh, conversation directed to women, to uh, very clearly in the text to singular, so that he's saying there's a particular woman, Paul, and you know who she is. She should not be teaching or having authority over a man. And Paul is addressing a specific woman. That's why the text moves to pl- from plural to singular. I'll talk more about this later, but for now, that's all we have time for. Very important subject, right? So um, uh, when, we, when, when people say to me, hey, Richard, uh, your view uh, of women in the Bible, like you simply have shifted because you're accommodating culture there's a feminist wave and you're, and you're riding the wave. I get kind of angry when people say that to me. Because I, I say to people, you know, I grew up in a church where women had no voice. Women couldn't speak, couldn't teach, uh, couldn't even pass the offering plates in the church in, in which I grew up. And the reason I changed my view is not to accommodate culture, but to obey the Bible. It was once I began to really study the scripture, uh, I moved toward this revelation that God is uh, gifting people irrespective of gender. It's what I believe Paul meant when he said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, there is therefore now in Christ no longer what? These categories that are hierarchical that exclude people. No longer male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, uh, but what? Christ is all in all, gifting, calling, regardless of gender, regardless of nationality, regardless of, of economic status, regardless of education. God is creating a new community, and in this community, anyone can use any gift, it's based on God's gifting and calling, not on gender. So that's the thing, right? Uh, now, there's a, there's a word to men and women drawn from this. First of all, none of us should place human limitations on a person's calling. In other words, you can't say, oh, well, that person could never do that because of such and such. No, 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 that's, that would be inappropriate, right? Uh, and... and uh, Second, we, we need to see then that when a woman speaks, it's vital that we receive what God has to say through a woman and, and allow a woman to have authority. It's, it's not, we shouldn't be threatened by that. When I was in uh, Southern California going to seminary, 
I was familiar with a church that had invited a woman to speak, and they had invited her precisely because um, they wanted her to speak because she spoke on why women shouldn't speak and teach. So it was ironic to begin with, but anyway, they're inviting her, inviting her to come and talk about how only men should preach and teach. But of course, this does create a dilemma because she's actually you know, speaking up front, and they didn't, they didn't want her to be preaching or teaching. So literally, they slid away the pulpit, they slid over a music stand, and the pastor got up before, and in his introduction to her, he says, I want to, I want to make it clear to all of you, she's not preaching, she's not teaching, she's sharing. Because it's a, because it's a music stand, she's sharing. And, and, and then she got up, and she opened the Bible, and she taught, right, uh, on why women shouldn't teach. This is whatever. You get it. Like, to what great lengths will we go to censor? Listen, at times, here's the danger. We're, we're not censoring a woman. We're censoring the voice of God. Because how does God speak to us? Through the body of Christ. And, and far be it from me, as your leader, to preemptively censor anyone based on gender or class or education. No. Or race. God is creating a community uh, where people who lead and serve, lead and serve based on giftedness and calling. So God calls Deborah. God calls Deborah to lead. And if God is calling you to lead, lead. If you're a woman, lead. If you're a man, lead. And if you're being led, allow yourself to be led, <laughs> regardless of who the leader is. This is the point. Second, God calls Deborah to serve. And the reason I say that is because all leadership in the Bible that is healthy leadership is servant leadership. Uh, Jesus made it very clear. He said, look, when, when you, when you uh, observe the prevailing culture, what you find in the prevailing culture is always a hierarchical sense of leadership. Jesus said it this way, the Gentiles, that's kind of the world, the Gentiles lord it over them. I'm up here, you're down there. I have the corner office, you have a closet in the basement, right? And like, I'm, I, I say what needs to be done, you do it. I'm high, you're low. I'm rich, you're poor. That's the world that we live in. Jesus says, no. That's not real leadership at all. That's the world's real leadership. I'm telling you, here's leadership. Leadership is servant leadership. Well, what does that even mean, servant leadership? We learn it best through the example of Deborah. Now watch this. We see that Deborah is providing servant leadership in this single way. She is willing to step right into the thick of battle. In chapter 4, verse 3, you read, here's the problem. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord because Sisera, the commander of the oppressing army, has 900 iron chariots. And he's oppressing the sons of Israel. They're, they're enslaved. And he has been oppressing them, not just oppressing, oppressing severely for 20 years. So Sisera, 900 iron chariots. So here's the enemy, 900 chariots. Here's Israel. How many iron chariots? None right? No weapons versus like an army with chariots. So, so that's the situation. But Deborah, uh, she says to Barak, the son of Abinim, behold, the Lord, the God of Israel has commanded. God has spoken to me. This is Deborah. God has spoken to me. You now, Barak, go and march to Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men, I'll draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops, and I will give him into your hand. So God has spoken to her. She speaks to Barak. And what does she say to Barak? Hey, I, listen, 
I'm the judge, I'm the prophetess, I'm the commander of the army, and now I'm telling you, based on the authority that God has given me, you go, you fight the battle, you'll win. God's given you this guy, go. Uh, But here's the problem. He says, oh, if you'll go with me, then I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I will not go. So she sends him into battle, and he says, yeah, well, whatever, I'm not going unless you go. Uh, By the way, uh, we call this insubordination, (laughs) right? So, like, she has authority, so what could she do? She could have him court-martialed. She could call the military police in and toss him in jail. She could have him shot for insubordination or desertment or abandonment or whatever the word is, I don't know. And then, but instead, what does she do? Well, read verse 9. He says, I won't go unless you go. She says, oh, okay, then I'll go with you. Uh, you know what that's called? Servant leadership. Why? Because servant leadership is this, always. Servant leadership is leadership with, and not just with, it's out in front of, even. Be- of course, the best example of servant leader, Jesus. He comes to the front lines of humanity. He empties himself. He becomes a servant. He becomes obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He washes the feet of those who are doubting, one of whom is about to betray him. He does, in his death, he goes down into hell, does battle with the forces of darkness, comes back, bringing triumph, bringing resurrection life. Who are the beneficiaries? We who are gathered here 2,000 years later. We are the beneficiaries of Christ's servant leadership. Deborah does the same thing. Sacrificial leadership for the sake of the people on the front lines. And then, so she and her friend Jael, another woman, They're doing battle with a powerful enemy. If you want to see a picture in the Bible of Christ as servant leader, don't look any farther than Deborah. She does it better than anybody. And so the second observation here that's pretty significant is I kind of ask the question as I'm studying this, well, what gives her this great confidence that, that they're going to win the battle? I mean, at a human scale, here's Israel and, and here's Sisera and his army. Like they are outmanned, outgunned, outmilitarized. So why does she have confidence? And here's the thing, verse 6, this is, she frames everything in this. Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel has commanded, go. In other words, this is, this is what God wants. This is God's calling. And hear me, if it's God's calling, it's the right thing to do. That's all that matters. So she's like this. If I'm where God wants me to be, then I'm in the right place. And I, I may not even know the outcome. I still want to be what? Exactly where God wants me to be. I mean, if you go back to Joshua chapter 14, Joshua and Caleb are having this conversation. And, and uh, Caleb says to Joshua, hey, we're, you know, 85 years old now, and God's been with us all the way. And now, you know, most of the battles are over, but there's still giants in the, in the hill country. Caleb asked Joshua at 85, he says, here's my request. I think God is calling me to go up into the hill country and kill the giants who are living there. He's 85. I want to go. And then this is what he says. I love this. He says, send me into battle. Watch this. Perhaps God will give me a victory. What an annoying word, perhaps. (laughs) Hey, listen, God, if I'm going to go do your will, I want to know the outcome. I want to know how it's going to play out. In fact, here, God, you tell me the outcome. Give me, you know, 10 assurances, and then I'll go. That's not how it works. God says, hey, step into battle, uh, and, and you don't know. Always, perhaps, perhaps it unfolds swimmingly, perhaps you last a year, you don't know, you go, that's the key, 
That's Deborah. She goes where others will not go. Why? Because she hears God's voice, and, and hearing God's voice in this case enables her to go with confidence. Verse 9 and 10, this is what she says, I'll go with you, but the honor will no longer be yours, Barak. Uh, 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 listen, here's the deal. The Lord will sell Sisera, the commander of this oppressing army, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then she rose and she went. But her confidence is in God. And now I'm going to note something here, another interpretive problem. The story at this point gets incredibly violent. Some of you know the story, some of you don't. I'm going to paraphrase it for you just so you, get, so you see what happens. You go to the end of the chapter, and the, uh, the army's already been decimated. And now, as happens in the movies, only the commanding officer is left, and he's on the run, right? And so as he's, as he's running away... Uh, this woman, Jael, invites the commanding officer, Sisera, into her tent. Now, if you know the backstory, that's, a, that's crazy. Why? This guy's not only an evil commander, he has a reputation, according to chapter 5, for using his power to sexually assault and exploit women. So, so uh, uh, Jael has this, uh, excuse me, Sisera has this reputation of uh, using women. And using his power to use women. So why would she invite him into a tent? Well, because she's tricky, that's why. Because <laughs> now, kind of, kind of watch, watch what happens here. Hey, uh, look, you're on the run, come on in. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And, and here, have some milk, which I don't have the time to go into and develop this fully, but like the milk here is, is a drug, right? Like he wants, he says, I'm really thirsty, can I have some water? Oh, no, I'm going to give you something better. Better, right? I'm going to do something better. Because what happens is he drinks it, he immediately falls asleep. And then, uh, once she's drugged him and he's sleeping in her tent, she drives a tent peg through his head. Is that beautiful? <laughs> I'm going to stop right here and say something pretty important. Do not try this at home, <laughs> right? Just like so you know. And what I mean by that, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but over and over again in the Bible, here's the deal. You find God using people for God's purposes without condoning their methods. In other words, again, just like that 1 Timothy 2 passage, you have to ask the question, is this normative? Is this how we're supposed to deal with our enemies? And no, it's not normative. The thing is, God uses people to get the job done, but he doesn't condone the methods. God had promised to uh, Jacob that he'd receive what? Like an inheritance and a blessing, and so what does Jacob run out and do? He, he cheats and steals and lies to gain the blessing. Does he gain the blessing? Yes. Did God condone the method? No. Rahab the prostitute. Uh, she shelters the spies going into the city of Jericho in the book of Joshua. And then when these uh, uh, Jericho soldiers come and say, do you know where the spies are? She lies. And she says, oh, I think they went that way when they're right there. Does, is God condoning the lying? No. He's condoning her faith. But he's not condoning the lying. And he's, con he's condoning here um, uh, Sisera's, excuse me, Jael's courage, but, but not Jael's methodology. And I, how do I know that? Because again, I'm looking for the, flaw, the kind of the trajectory line of the Bible because Jesus' ethic trumps all other ethics. And what did Jesus say regarding how we treat our enemies? You have heard it said in the Bible, remember this? Uh, love your friends Hate your enemies. But I say to you, 
Drive a tent peg through your enemies' heads after you've drugged them. Is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus said, I say to you, look, if your enemy makes you hike a mile with a pack, hike two. If he hits you on the left cheek, let him hit you on the right. Look, you don't beat violence with violence. That's Jesus. So God condones the faith, not the methodology. So then what, what, what do we learn from this story then? Well, very important. Back in, the, back in the day, in the Old Testament, what God did is God, um, uh, he, he used a nation to shine his light in the midst of all the other nations. And in that era, uh, the nationalism and the wars were like God was in that somehow. We're not in that era anymore. The, God's people are not confined to a nation. We're scattered throughout the world. And so our, look, no nation then is our enemy. And by the way, no political action committee is our enemy. Not the NRA, not the, not the Democrats, not the Republicans. No president is our enemy. No party is our enemy. Uh, no terrorist group. Not, our, not at the baseline, no. How do I know this? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, which explains quite clearly that in this era, our enemies are not of flesh and blood. This is what Paul says, and you didn't turn there, but let me read it for you. 2 Corinthians 10, though we walk in the flesh, we live here in the body, though we walk in the flesh, um, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The weapons of our warfare, look, not political action committees, uh, not signature parties, not guns. The weapons are not of the flesh. What are we doing then? Uh, we're destroying speculation. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because, my, look, the biggest enemy I have to do battle with isn't out there, it's in here. That's what Paul's saying. My biggest enemy is spiritual. So, so what enemies are we called in this room to do battle with? All kinds. The enemy of addiction. The enemy of, of complacency in your marriage. The enemy of cynicism. The enemy of fear, of greed, of hate. The enemy of hating your body. The enemy of lust. The enemy of self-medicating by shopping. The, the enemy of pride. The enemy of self-righteousness. The enemy of materialism. The enemy of nationalism. The enemy of individualism. Those enemies are rampant in the, among the people of God. And we're called to take a pig and drive right through the heart of that evil and say, in the name of Christ, no more. I'm done with lust. I'm done with fear. I'm done with greed. I'm done with shame. And we will fight those battles. And sometimes we'll slip back, fight again and again and again. Why? Never settle for allowing Sisera to oppress you. Do you hear what I'm saying? Super important. Because over and over again in the Bible, you find the calling to do battle but when you come to the New Testament, the calling is always to do spiritual battle with these fortresses and, and principalities and powers that kind of take hold and create in us fear. Fear of financial provision. So we stay in jobs we hate. Fear of vulnerability so we don't confess to our spouse when it could lead to healing. Fear of uh, our, the image that we have of our body. Shame, so that, so that we eat poorly, 
or, or, or we self-abuse or we self-medicate. No. <laughs> we need to do battle. And we can with confidence. How do I know? 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. When Jesus rose from the dead, he, he said, hey, while I was dead, my, my paraphrase, I went down and defeated all the principalities and powers. So now the only reason that they have any influence in your life is you're believing lies. They have no more power. It's over. It is finished. You can know victory. Get on with it. That's Deborah. Lots to learn. And then, uh, once they win this victory, God calls Deborah to sing several great songs in the Bible, sung and written by women. Uh, Miriam in Exodus, after the Red Sea collapses and destroys the Egyptian army. Mary in Luke 1, when she hears the announcement that uh, she's pregnant with Messiah. And this one in Judges 5. And these songs all share two themes in common. They all say this, wow, look what God has done. In other words, there's none of this, ooh, look what I've done. No, look what God has done. There's this sense. I'm in the story, but the, like the active agency is God. Look what God has done. And wouldn't it be marvelous if in our community, in our small groups, in our fellowship, in our marriages, with our children, wouldn't it be marvelous if we had stories like this? Look what God has done. So we're able to share with one another. So look how God has provided. Look how God has restored. Look how God has healed. Look how God has delivered. Look what God has done. We need these stories in our community. So the most significant moments uh, in my life as a parent, I believe, has been walking with kids through kind of ministry life because of my vocation and uh, being able to share with them uh, moments of significant provision and significant turning points and significant liberation so that, so that the, the gospel that they learned in Sunday school, that Jesus is enough, doesn't remain in Sunday school, but it begins to bleed into life. But that requires stories. Look what God has done. And I love that in the Bible, these women are quick to tell the story. Look, what, look, at, look at this. Look what God did. God destroyed the, the Egyptian army. God destroyed um, uh, Sisera. Uh, God, God brought uh, Messiah into my body. Look what God has done. And then, significant because it's so like ripe with humility, look who God has used. God... God used me, <laughs> which is just this echo of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many strong. Look who, God, look who God has used. Can I encourage you? Begin to tell the stories. If you don't have stories, you have work to do, battles to fight. But as you fight your battles, you'll begin to have stories, and the stories you'll have are these. Look what God has done. Look who God has used. You'll celebrate. And this is what makes faith real. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of this chapter 5 song that Deborah sings in the wake of victory because it kind of brings to light a few things. And I'm reading from the message translation. Public roads were abandoned. Travelers were going back roads. Warriors had become fat and sloppy. No fight left in them. And then Deborah rose up. You got up a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders who then fought at the gates. Most blessed of all women is Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of homemakers... He asked for water, she brought milk. In a handsome bowl, she added cream. Cream. She grabbed a tent peg in her left hand. And with her right hand, she seized a hammer. And she hammered Sisera and smashed his head and drove a hole through his temple. You think rap is violent? Read the Bible. 
He, he slumped at her feet. He fell. He sprawled. He slumped at her feet. He fell, slumped, fallen, dead. And then, may that happen to all God's enemies. Right? You can, you can hear it. In all three songs, though, all these songs, beautiful display of what I call God confidence. In other words, there's no human boasting. The boast is in God's strength, God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's triumph, and a clear sense of awe and joy that instead of God killing Sisera unilaterally, God uses people in God's story of deliverance. But only in this story is there a kind of a third element, and it's this. Uh, Deborah muses on those who didn't go into battle. Listen to verses 15 to 17. In Reuben's divisions, there was second guessing. Why all those campfire discussions diverted and distracted? Reuben's divisions couldn't make up their minds. They stayed home. Gilead played it safe across the Jordan. Dan went sailing. That's applicable in this congregation. Asher kept his distance on the seacoast, safe and secure in the harbors. Do you hear what, do you hear what she's saying? Look, God had a story to write. There were battles to fight, enemies to overcome, victories to be won, blessings to accrue, and you stayed home. Oh, like may it never be. When God's calling you to do battle with either internal or external forces of oppression, it's because God wants to bring all the forces of Christ's resurrection victory to bear on your life so that you experience now not as theory but as reality, God is enough. So God wants to bring victory over your hidden addiction, your affair, your out-of-control spending, your anger, your fear, your, your cynicism. God wants to bring victory, and that's what's haunting about verses 15 to 17. People were called into battle and didn't go. <laughs> Look, don't stay home. When the Holy Spirit is speaking to you even this morning, there's one word. Hey, Richard, here's your enemy. Complacency. Then... Pay attention. Here's your enemy, fear. Here's your enemy, greed. Here's your enemy, lust. Yeah, do battle. And finally, God calls Deborah to be a mother in Israel, chapter 5, verse 7. Oh, yeah, 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 but that doesn't apply to us. Oh, it does. All of us, men and women in the room. Why? We're the bride of Christ. Do you realize? All of us are. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls us collectively the bride of Christ. Christ is a groom. We're the bride. Christ has the seed. We receive the seed. We receive the seed of resurrection life, and that's exactly what Jesus means when he says in John chapter 15, abide in me and you will what? Bear fruit. Like, do you want to be a person of influence in the world? Whether you do or not, you're called to be a person of influence. Because here's Jesus' desire for you. This is my desire. This is Jesus' words. This is my desire, that you bear much fruit. So how do I bear fruit? It's, I mean, A, I've got to do battle with my enemies. I name my enemy. My enemy's complacency. My enemy's fear of the future. My enemy's lust. My enemy's greed, shame, body image. I name my enemy. And then I begin to bring to bear the victory of Christ on that. Second, be filled with Christ's life. I begin through habits like, a, like coffee with God to continue to receive from Christ. I'm reminded every morning of my identity, my calling. Be filled with Christ's life. And here's the promise. As I do battle and I'm filled, the byproduct is this. You will bear fruit. A mother. <laughs> you, you'll be an influence. That's fruit. Someone will look at you and raise their game. Why? Because of what you did. 
You, you moved from this job to this job, and it inspired someone. You, you moved to, to greater end of senior marriage, and it inspired someone. Uh, you got out of debt, and it inspired someone. You were vulnerable and confessed, and it inspired someone. Or you could go sailing. No, no. All of us have battles to fight. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that Deborah uh, shines bright as an example for us. She just got on with what was in front of her. We now, some 2,900 years later, are uh, looking at her and seeking to follow you. Would you speak to us even as we respond now, Father, about our own enemies? Would you give us the courage to name them, to receive your life in order that we might bear fruit. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.